Our Advent series this year is titled Believing in, in Christmas. And in it, we're taking time to meditate together on a distinct and meaningful aspect of the Christmas story. I wonder if you've ever stopped to consider this. One feature in all four Gospels of the Christmas story is that God chooses to reveal the significance of Jesus' birth to several different people. And their stories, when taken together, serve as a kind of divine birth announcement for God the Son. And and each one of these accounts, each one of these announcements of Jesus' birth, it illuminates something different about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Each of the people that God chooses to reveal Jesus' birth to, they respond a certain way. They respond with faith, and their faith shows us something about Christ. These true accounts of the miraculous events surrounding Christ's birth, they should remind us, they ought to remind us why Jesus' birth is worth celebrating. Do you ever come to the Christmas season and think, okay, it's time to do it again. I'm going to get the boxes back out. I'm going to put the decorations back up. My calendar is going to get extraordinarily full of things, some of which I want to do and many of which I do not want to do. And hopefully I can make it to January. Oh, I hope that this series and I hope that our text today will bring you back to the reason for all the fuss, the reason for the celebration. Last week, we looked at Simeon in Luke chapter 2. The Holy Spirit enabled Simeon to see and to believe that Jesus would bring consolation, that he would bring comfort to God's people. And today we give our attention to the familiar story of the wise men in Matthew chapter 2. So let's read the text together, and then we will pray and begin. So please turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. I'm starting in Matthew 2 and verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, 
the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to move our hearts, to direct our attention to Jesus in the same way the attention of these wise men were directed to Jesus. Lord, our desire is that we would end this service worshiping Jesus more fully and more deeply, but we are all too aware that there are many distractions from worshiping Jesus. There are many things we bring into the room with us, clouding our hearts and obscuring our view of King Jesus. Father, would you send your spirit to open our eyes afresh to the reason that we celebrate this season? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you would know that Bob Coughlin is the head of Sovereign Grace Music. This is the music arm of our family of churches, and Bob has been leading worship in one context or another since 1976. Since 1976. That's a long time. 47 years of leading worship through song. Now, like other aspects of public ministry, Leading worship comes with its own particular challenges and temptations. So first, it's a public ministry. That means you're up on a stage in front of people, and it's extremely easy, extremely tempting to make it about you and your own performance. And this is a subtle and pervasive form of idolatry. To, to glorify yourself in the very job where you're supposed to be leading people to glorify God. Now, second, real worship is inherently a joyful thing. And you might be thinking, Tim, why is it challenging to lead people in something joyful? You see, the heart of the worshiper is focused primarily on Jesus, who he is and what he has done. We're lifting our attention away from the circumstances in this world and the challenges we face in our life and fixing our eyes on the one thing that can give us joy and peace and strength in any circumstance. But here's the rub. If the worship leader's heart or the pastor's heart or your heart is not fixed on Jesus, is not captivated by the joy that Jesus can give you because of who he is and what he has done, then we will be tempted to fake it, to act joyful when there is no real joy in our hearts. 
So you put yourself in the shoes of a worship leader standing up before God's people every Sunday, needing to sing the joyful song. But if your heart is not enamored with the gospel of grace, oh, you might put on a mask. You might fake that joy. In in his 2008 book, Worship Matters, Bob writes of a moment when this happened to him. He says this, I was leading worship at a conference, and I should have been exhilarated. After praying with the worship team, I headed up the stairs to start the meeting. The room was overflowing, the atmosphere electric. Same way a worship leader or a pastor can be tempted to make their performance about themselves. And in a season where everyone is expected to be joyful, we can be tempted to fake it just to get through. Friends, I experienced something like this as I was preparing this sermon this week. It's something of a, of a sobering joke among pastors that when you're about to preach a text, it's often true that God uses that text first to convict your own heart. This is a really good thing. It's a really good thing for me and for God's church. It can also be a really difficult thing in the moment. If you've ever been convicted by the Lord, then you know. Right now, I am in my dream job. And this week, I get to preach about nothing less than the birth of Jesus Christ in the middle of a season where we especially celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And as I was preparing this week, I recognized something in my soul that I, the joy was missing. The sermon prep had become a drudgery, and God very graciously revealed to me that it's because I was thinking too much about myself and my own performance. My eyes were no longer fixed on the joy of the gospel. They had drifted down to me. And so the joy that God offers to us in Christ was dampened. It was shrouded because idolatry always sets us against Jesus. You can't receive the joy Jesus has to give you if you're trying to step into the throne in Jesus' place. It doesn't work that way. The burden of the text today, friends, the burden of the text is joyful worship. The wise men want to lead you again afresh to joyfully worship the newborn king. But the wise men aren't the only characters in the text. King Herod and the people of Jerusalem get about half the airtime, and they are not rejoicing. They are missing it. They are missing it for the same reason that you and I can miss the joy of the incarnate Son of God this season. Because we may have allowed subtle forms of idolatry to creep into our hearts, dampening the joy we find in Christ. There is a great deal of joy in our text today. In fact, Matthew is giving us the only durable ground for joy that cannot be shaken by the circumstances of this world. But there is also a cautionary tale about missing the joy because our hearts are in love with ourselves and not our Savior. Our text creates an obvious contrast between Herod and these mysterious foreigners who come to worship the king. 
At its core, the text is about worship and idolatry. It's a text about our heart response to the incarnation of God the Son. We could summarize the main point this way. The birth of King Jesus is a matter of joyful worship. Praise the Lord. But those who worship themselves will ignore or oppose him. Our text gives us three main points today. Point number one, the wise men, verses one and two. Point number two, King Herod, verses three through eight. And point number three, King Jesus, verses nine through 12. Let's jump right into point number one, the wise men. Look again with me at verses one and two. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. There are several things that I want to point out to you this morning about these mysterious men. First, Matthew views these men as a sign from God himself, meant to teach us something about the significance of Jesus' birth. We see this in several ways. First, I wonder if you notice the word behold in our text today. Matthew uses this word twice. And, you know, before I became a preacher, I was not a grammar nerd. I actually didn't even enjoy grammar, but now it's growing on me. It's just part of the job. <laughs> yes, this Greek word is an interjection. It's a word or phrase that is grammatically independent from the words around it. And it mainly expresses a feeling rather than meaning. So the word literally means, look, take note, pay attention. And I love this. The Greek dictionary nearly always interprets it with an exclamation point. So we have to get excited. Matthew is excited. He's pausing his story to say, you need to pay attention now. If you're reading this account, look, behold, something extraordinary is about to happen. And of course, folks, this is an extraordinary account. God didn't just send a group of men to worship the newborn king. He used a star to guide them. A star. When was the last time you considered the star? We see it all over the place at Christmas time. You probably pass seven stars in your neighborhood as you drive home. There's going to be a little scene, a nativity, and right above the manger, there's going to be a star. But when was the last time you stopped and said, you know, I've never seen a star act like that. I've never seen a star move ahead, move the five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem and pause over the place where the Savior was born. There are a whole host of conjectures about this star, ranging from a conjunction of two planets or a comet or a supernova, or a miraculous light. The Bible simply does not explain exactly how God accomplished this. But one thing is absolutely clear. God is exercising his power over the universe in a massive and unprecedented way to bring a specific group of men to worship his son. 
the book of Luke shows God exercising sovereign power over the entire Roman Empire to cause a census to be, to be taken at exactly the right moment for Mary to give birth in Bethlehem to fulfill a prophecy that was hundreds of years old. The book of Matthew shows God exercising a very different kind of power. So when Matthew says, behold, he's saying, reader, wake up. If you are reading this, pay attention because God is doing something extraordinary to announce the birth of his son. This is no ordinary child. Second, I want you to note where these men are from. The text says that they're from the east. Commentators speculate, and we'll see in a minute why, they speculate that they're either from Persia or from Babylon. It is very significant for us that in the book of Matthew, the first people shown worshiping Jesus are not Jews. They're Gentiles from the east. Matthew has made a decision here. He's, he's made a theological choice not to include the story of the shepherds, the Jewish shepherds, not to include the stories of Simeon and Anna, but it's instead to have some strangers from the east, some Gentiles from the east, announce the birth of the king. Matthew presents this information as proof that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, fulfilling God's promise to Abraham that all the families on earth would be blessed through Abraham's offspring. These wise men are demonstrating that Jesus is no mere local king. He, he's a king with unusual scope for his authority and power. He's a king over every nation, Note, note that these wise men did not come to pay their respects to King Herod. Do you see that? They are not just courting favor with the political elite. It, it, it's not like they were studying the stars and they said, hey, look, a new king is born. Let's go to welcome him. You know, let's go to the, the welcoming party so that we can be in his good graces. No, they're not, well, they're not going to greet all the kings. They've come to worship the king of kings. The wise men are a sign for us that Jesus is meant to be your king too and my king, not simply a local king in the first century in Palestine. Now third, why are they called wise? Have you asked that question before? I had never asked that question before because I always assumed that the translators, when translating this into English, had translated a Greek word that meant wise, that they were actually wise men, but that's not the case. As some of you may be aware, depending on what version of the Bible you use, the word wise isn't even there, and some versions just tra translate it as magi, which is actually not a Greek word. It's a Latin word that translates the Greek magoi, which refers to a group of people. The, the, the etymology of that word is probably Persian or Babylonian. That's why people believe the wise men came from Persia or Babylon, but it refers to a group of people who would not have been considered worshipers of the one true God. Persia and Babylon use this word to refer to astrologers, seers, healers, people, people of a pagan 
religion. This is where we get our English word magic, magi, magic. And the only other time it's used in the New Testament, it's translated as magician, not wise man. And it's used in a very negative connotation of Elemus, the, the magician who's opposing Paul and who Paul strikes blind. What is Matthew's point here? Let me rephrase that question. What is God's point here? Why did God draw these men to announce the birth of the king? The point is that these men have not earned the right to worship Jesus. It's not because of their special spiritual wisdom or their personal holiness that they were chosen for this role. They are called wise men because of the way that they respond to Jesus. This is one of the key ways that the New Testament redefines what wisdom is. Listen to this. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 to 24. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Did you catch that? God, in his wisdom, has designed it so that we cannot find him through our wisdom. These men didn't have a special wisdom. One mistake we can make in this text that will change our interpretation of the text is to think that they were intrinsically wise, that they bring something to the table that recommended them to God for this special role in Christ's birth, but it's just the opposite. They were the last people the Jews would have expected to show up to worship the Christ. They proved themselves wise because when God revealed his son to them, They respond with faith, joy, and worship. Folks, that is a kind of wisdom that is available to us this morning. That's the question of this text. Do you feel it? How will we respond to the birth of Jesus? Because there are some in our text who are not celebrating. And that brings us to point number two. King Herod. Look with me at verse number three. Chapter two, verse three. When Herod the king heard this, that is, when he heard the rumors that that mysterious men have arrived from the east and they're asking questions about a newborn king of the Jews. So when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, to clarify, this is Herod the Great. His son, Herod Antipas, is the one who will later kill John the Baptist. Herod is a fascinating character. If you have time to read some church history, this is worth your time. He was a player on the international political scene. He was apparently a very capable ruler, 
in many ways, but he was also extremely cruel and paranoid about losing his position and power. Herod's father was friends with Julius Caesar. Herod himself was educated and spent his early life in Rome, where he became friends with Mark Antony. At one point in his life, he exchanged letters with Cleopatra. Uh, one of the most famous comments in, in extra-biblical history about Herod the Great came from August, Caesar Augustus when he said it would be safer to be one of Herod's cows than to be one of his sons. And that's because he was so paranoid about losing power that by this point in Matthew chapter 2, he had killed nearly every remaining member of the ruling family that ruled prior to his reign, including one of his wives and the two children that he bore to him. This is Herod, Herod the Great. At this point in Herod's life, he is probably about 68 years old. Think of what he's about to do. You know the story. He hatches a secret plot to kill the Christ. And when God intervenes with a dream and sends the wise men home by a different way, how does Herod respond? He kills all the boys two years old and younger in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. This 68-year-old man is so wrapped up in idolatry of his own small kingdom that when he hears a rumor that another king is going to be born, he's willing to massacre all the children in a city. That is what idolatry has done to this man's heart. God himself has taken on flesh and come to earth five miles away in the city of Bethlehem. And Herod, instead of rejoicing, he is troubled. He is angry. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, the ancient of days has arrived on earth on Herod's doorstep. And Herod cannot feel any curiosity or joy or celebration. Why? Because he's worried about losing his own small kingdom. And Herod's not the only one in the story who does not rejoice at Jesus' birth. Look at verses 4 and 5. And Herod, assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And they go on to quote the prophet. When Matthew says all the chief priests and scribes, he's probably indicating that, indicating that the entire Sanhedrin has been called into a special session by this elderly king who's worried about losing his kingdom. The Sanhedrin, as a reminder, was the highest court in Israel, comprised of the Sadducees, Pharisees, and scribes. And they confirm that the Christ is to be born in Bethlehem. So, Maybe we could assume that Herod, the non-believer, the non-Jew, doesn't understand the significance of the birth of the Christ. But these men certainly do. And they do not go. Matthew doesn't write, and the wise men, joined by 
150 of the Sanhedrin make the five-mile trek to Bethlehem to worship the newborn king. The Jewish religious elite say the Christ has just been born in Bethlehem, and they are indifferent about it. What has to be happening in our hearts to be indifferent about the birth of this king? Matthew is telling us that all Jerusalem, including King Herod, the chief priests, the scribes, is buzzing with the news of the wise men, news that the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God has been born, and the only ones who go to worship him is the group of astrologers from Babylon. My friends, this is what idolatry looks like in our hearts. When we are worshiping something other than Christ, we will be indifferent to him as long as we don't view him as a threat. And we will resist him whenever his kingdom begins to encroach upon our own. Brothers and sisters, let me break this to you gently. Jesus' kingdom is going to encroach upon your own. And that is either going to trouble us if we cannot let go of our idols, or it is going to set us free from slavery to those idols to experience a deeper and more satisfying joy than we could ever imagine as we lay down our crowns at his feet in worship. And that brings us to point Number three, King Jesus, verses 9 to 12. Look at verses 9 and 10. Let's read verses 9 to 11. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Behold, first, behold, wise men came, astrologers came to Jerusalem. Now, Behold, look, pay attention. This star is doing weird things. And it comes to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child Mary with his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. This word worship, they're prostrating themselves at his feet. Then opening their treasures, they offer him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. In verse 10, Matthew uses four different words to describe the intensity of the joy of these men. Then in verse 11, these adult men lay down on their chests. They prostrate themselves before Jesus. Jesus is likely maybe about one year old. At this point, can you imagine this scene? Do you see Matthew almost tripping over his words to describe the joy and the beauty of this scene? Our question is what does the text tell us about Jesus to warrant this type of joy? And, and maybe a more personal question. Right now, this Christmas season, are you still connecting with this kind of joy? I think it's difficult for most adults to fully believe in this kind of joy. Let's read it again. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. What do you think that looked like? 
Well, we know that it overflowed into going face down before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and offering him all their treasure. We, we know what it resulted in. Are you experiencing an echo of this joy in your heart this Christmas season? And if not, the question is going to be why? And you would do well to give attention to that question, to give close attention to your hearts. Because Matthew is telling us that at least one of the things that can obstruct and dampen this kind of joy is subtle idolatry at work in our hearts. So what does the text tell us about Christ that should lead us to this kind of worship? As we said, the first thing it tells us is in verse 2. The wise men announce something specific. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? It tells us that Jesus is a king. Now, as we said earlier, the presence of these foreigners from the east means that Jesus is a unique king, a king of all nations. But to learn the full significance of this title, we have to dig deeper. Listen to the first words of the book of Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew begins by connecting Jesus to David, Israel's greatest king. And that connects Jesus to a promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, a promise that one of David's descendants will have an eternal kingdom. Matthew's telling us that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Now, what we don't understand what that means until we understand what it means to be a king. In biblical terms, a king does two things primarily. Not only two things, but two main things. The first thing a king does is to represent the people before God. And the second thing he does is to protect the people from their enemies. Friends, are you aware that you need to be represented before God this morning? Do you know that you need a mediator if you're going to enter God's holy presence and receive his love rather than the condemnation that we deserve for our sin? This is what Jesus came to do, to represent you before God so that he could receive the just punishment for our sin and we could be set free. Another question are you aware that we have enemies this morning? The Bible generally groups our enemies into three different groups. Sin and all of its effects, death and everything associated with it. The fact that our bodies get sick and break down and get injured. And finally, Satan. We have spiritual enemies this morning. Jesus the king came to protect you from your enemies. Can you even imagine the joy that you would experience? Let, let, let me pose a, a question, a thought experiment for you. Next year is an election year. What if I could convince you that someone who was capable of this was on the ballot? Someone who was capable of defeating these enemies, sin, Death and Satan was running on the ballot. And let's say against all odds, our crazy country actually elected this person. Could you imagine, could you begin to imagine the joy that you would feel if you, know, if you knew that an eternal 
king had just stepped into office. A king who was capable of defeating sin, death, and Satan, of setting all of society in perfect order, and that he was never going to die, his term was never going to end, and that for the rest of time, your society was safe, secure, well-led by this wise and gracious king. We have a name for that place. That place is called heaven. And that's, where we are, that's what we are destined for when we join ourselves to this king. And second, the text tells us what kind of king Jesus is. Did you catch it? It's in the prophecy in verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will what? Who will shepherd my people Israel? He's a shepherd king, brothers and sisters. This is a rich biblical metaphor, and it emphasizes care, compassion, provision, and protection. In the biblical worldview, all leaders are meant to be shepherd leaders. And Jesus is the good shepherd. Do you see the picture that's emerging here? An eternal king of all nations, the king of kings and lord of lords, strong enough to protect you from your biggest enemies, yet gentle as a shepherd caring for his sheep, meeting their every need. That's who was born in Bethlehem. The worship team can come on up as we prepare to close. I want to leave you with a question. How is your soul doing this Christmas season? I think the burden of this text is to show us the connection between what we worship and the quality and durability and intensity of our joy. The wise men experienced extraordinary joy because they were worshiping the one true king, because they responded in faith to the newborn king. But there were many in the story, Herod, the scribes, the chief priests who experienced no joy. Jesus was worthy of their worship. He was worthy of their allegiance. They all should have been prostrating themselves before him in Bethlehem, but they were either indifferent or hostile to him because they were worshiping something else. And I think that what that teaches us is that the level, the quality, and durability of our joy it is an indicator of what we're worshiping. Because when we're worshiping something less than Christ, our joy is fleeting, temporary, and fragile. Our joy is insecure. We will be tempted to be anxious if we are worshiping something less than Christ. Whereas if we are worshiping Christ, our joy is absolutely secure for all time. All the promises of God are yes for you in him. So I ask again, how is your soul doing this Christmas? Have concerns about your own affairs, your own little kingdom, 
obscured the exceedingly great joy that is ours in the birth of the King. And if that's you, to whatever degree this morning, I pray you will let the wise men lead you back to the manger throne where we experience exceedingly great joy as we lay down our treasures, we lay down our own kingdom, and we worship the true king. Let's pray. Father, we know that this kind of worship, worshiping the King of kings and Lord of lords, looking at the baby in the manger and seeing the incarnate Son of God who came to live the perfect life we could not live and die the death that we deserve, looking at the baby in the manger and seeing the shepherd king is a work of your spirit, Lord. I pray that you would send your spirit to purify us of any vestiges of idolatry and set us free to rejoice and celebrate the king this Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.